a Supreme Court justice who never stopped fighting for women's rights and equality. People ask me sometimes, when, when do you think it will be enough? When will, it, will there be enough women on the court? And my answer is, when there are nine. She betrayed a friend and almost brought down a president. Well, to me, he's a predator and always will be a predator. She was an intern, a kid, who happened to be extremely emotionally young for her age. And though he was badly beaten physically, he never stopped preaching nonviolence and reconciliation. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks and bull whips, tramping us with horses and releasing the tear gas. At the foot of that bridge, I was beaten. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. But if dying was necessary to make it possible for hundreds and thousands and millions of people to be able to participate in a democratic process, that was the price to pay. In 2020, we said farewell to groundbreaking members of Congress, politicians who made a difference, and some of our favorite journalists. We celebrate their lives and their careers coming up on the Political Junkie 2020 Remembrances Special. Thanks for joining us and welcome to episode 356 of the Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. How to describe the year 2020, a virus that claimed more than 330,000 Americans and counting, a president who dismissed the pandemic as something not to worry about, insisting it's not much more than the flu, that it's the creation of the media to help bring him down. And even when the voters did bring him down, an unending effort to claim the election was fixed, that it was stolen without any evidence other than personal pique. Also, a 77-year-old Democrat who was seen as all but finished politically, coming back to win his party's presidential nomination and naming a black woman to the ticket. There was good and bad in 2020. I'm afraid to say that the bad probably far outweighed the good. It's a year we're ready to put to rest. One would hope that 2021 would have to be better. After all, how could it get any worse? But for now, let's leave the ugliness and the vitriol and the truth-bending behind. Let's instead, at least for now, honor and celebrate those we lost, the giants in the political world who are no longer with us. For better or worse, these people helped make our lives more interesting and tried in their own way to make the world a better place. We're going to spend this week's program remembering them. We'll hear their life's highlights and lowlights, some in their own voices. We'll also hear from those who knew them. And joining me in this remembrance is Ron Elving, a senior editor and special correspondent for NPR, who is my podcast partner for more than six years, a prequel to the Political Junkie podcast you're listening to now. Ron, it's, it's a special treat having you on the program. Ken, it's always a pleasure to be with you again. And you've said this to me privately, but you're happier being on this program and then with Scott Simon, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. because there's just really no comparison yeah. between you and Scott Simon. Right. And you can certainly take that any way you like. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I thought it was a compliment. Okay. We're going to spend the rest of the program remembering and honoring those we, who left us in 2020. But before we start, just sum up your thoughts about the year we just had. For many people, this was arguably the worst year of their lives. They look back on this year as a year of loss. They've lost loved ones. They have lost, in many cases, their livelihood. 
They look back on it as a year in which they lost faith in many institutions, particularly the federal government. So there are a few years to compare it to, and one can only say that uh, if there is some other year to compete with 2020 to be the worst year of our lives, we don't really want to remember it. You know, I think we're both old enough to remember 1968, the the war in Vietnam, the the political assassinations, the unrest at home, and that had always topped my worst year ever list. This year just seems so many times worse. In the sense that it affected so many people who generally speaking, try to keep politics out of their lives, try not to pay any attention to politics. But from a political standpoint, even with all of the assassinations and all of the conflicts of 1968, many people managed to do that. That's just not possible in the America of 2020. Let me ask you one final question before we get to the topic at hand. And this is uh, politics coming up the next couple of weeks. The two runoffs, actually, it's not even a couple of weeks, it's one week. The two runoffs in Georgia, what, what, what do you think happens on January 5th? It seems likely that, given the fact that 2.1 million people have already voted there, that we're going to have extraordinary turnout for a special election. Usually, the numbers in a special, as you well know, don't approach those for a regularly scheduled. But in this case, we already know there are millions of people voting. We know there will be lots more people showing up on the actual day, and it's likely to be just completely unpollable in the sense that we have come to learn that many people resist polling in our time, and that tends to be a group that is not necessarily perfectly representative, and those who are willing to be polled are not necessarily representative either, and it's a pollster's nightmare. One other thing I think is pretty likely is that we will see many people voting for both of the Democrats and many people voting for both of the Republicans. There'll be some ticket splitting, but my sense is they're campaigning together more and more and that that's really going to matter and that the way people feel about Donald Trump, who's going to be there literally on the eve of the election, having a big rally the night before they vote, how they feel about Donald Trump may wind up being the deciding factor. You, I keep seeing headlines of all the money that both Ossoff and Warnock are raising, but we saw, you know, Jamie Harrison in South Carolina raising a ton of money, a record amount of money against Lindsey Graham and everybody saying, well, that must mean something. And he got clobbered. So people just feel that, that when you have that much money, it must mean something. All it really means is you're not going to be badly outspent. That's all it means to raise $100 million in a case like this. It, it seems insane, but all four of these candidates, you know, on average, they're all over $100 million. Yeah, it's for all the marbles. I mean, Mitch McConnell and uh, Chuck Schumer are certainly uh, going to be up late on, uh, on January 5th. So anyway, I have this giant list in front of me of, of, of those who left us in 2020. Some were, some were famous, some not so famous. But I want to start with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 27 years on the court, Ron, I don't remember any member of the court ever who had such a following. She was RBG, the notorious RBG. (laughs) There were were rap songs about her. Uh, There were videos about her. There were two movies about her. Uh, She was a rock star. What else can you say? At the same time that she had spent absolutely zero percentage of her time on Earth trying to get that kind of attention. What she tried to do was be the first woman to do this, the first woman to do that. She was only the second only the second woman to be on the Supreme Court, but she was the first Democrat, and she was certainly the first one who was seen as a world-class champion of women's rights, and not just women's rights, 
but voting rights for all kinds of people and rights for people other than voting. So she was an absolutely iconic, monumental figure in the progressive movement, even though all she set out to do was to be the best lawyer and the best judge she could be. I just want to play a little piece of tape from uh, President Clinton's announcement uh, of, the, of the nomination. This was June 22nd, 1993. I decided on her for three reasons. First, in her years on the bench, she has genuinely distinguished herself as one of our nation's best judges. Progressive in outlook, wise in judgment, balanced and fair in her opinions. Second, over the course of a lifetime, in her pioneering work in behalf of the women of this country, she has compiled a truly historic record of achievement in the finest traditions of American law and citizenship. And finally, I believe that in the years ahead, she will be able to be a force for consensus building on the Supreme Court, just as she has been on the Court of Appeals, so that our judges can become an instrument of our common unity in the expression of their fidelity to the Constitution. Ron, you know, she was larger than life. She was, and that was part of the irony was that she was such a tiny person physically when people made videos of her exercise routine, and she was a survivor of multiple, multiple cases of, of cancer, and she had survived again and again, and she had an exercise routine that would exhaust people half her age, and she kept up, and when people watched her doing these exercises, they would just laugh out loud at this, at this tiny person lifting these weights and doing all of this workout. And that just symbolized her absolutely fearsome degree of energy and determination. You know, I, I remember I could still picture the dread in the hearts of so many Americans. Every time she went into the hospital, every time there was a bad announcement about her health, there were so many people on social media, media who would have donated body parts, anything to keep her on the court, to keep her alive, at least until the new president could be elected. Yes, of course, much of that was their personal affection for her, their respect for her. And, of course, much of it was the fear that Donald Trump would appoint someone who would be, in many respects, her judicial philosophy opposite. And to some degree, although uh, we did get another woman on the Supreme Court, to some degree we got someone who was quite different on many, many significant issues. And not only the, not only uh, Amy Coney Barrett was, was much different than she uh, politically but, and ideologically, but remembering the way uh, they did it, con considering what they did when Obama tried to name a replacement for Justice Scalia in 2016. Well, that's right. In 2016, we had seven, eight, nine months uh, of lead time before the election. And uh, the Republicans said, no, no, we can't do that in an election year. We've got to give the people a chance to weigh in and, and, and have a choice in November before whoever wins that election makes a choice of the next Supreme Court justice. Well, you could debate whether or not that was unprecedented or whether or not there had been a similar case in the past. The fact of the matter is they, they plainly did not want to allow Barack Obama a third nomination on the court. And even though Merrick Garland was somebody many of the Republicans had expressed respect for and said would make a great choice. So they never even gave him so much as a hearing. And Justice Ginsburg died on September 18th, and yet they rushed through the nomination. It's one of the, I guess, sore points in, in thinking about uh, what the Republicans may have overdone uh, in the last few years. Another person whose entire life was dedicated to justice and equality was John Lewis, the congressman from Georgia who 
who not only risked his life, he almost lost his life in the pursuit of basic voting rights for African-Americans during that famous Selma to Montgomery march in 1965. Yes, that's right. At the Edmund Pettus Bridge, just outside of Selma, Alabama, uh, he was one of the marchers who was beaten severely uh, to, to, the, to the point of, of near death. He was, all these years later, if it's possible to be a living martyr, that's what John Lewis was. And he was still able to speak and speak like a siege gun as recently as this past year. So he was a living example to generation after generation of civil rights activists, young people, people who were interested in politics in any way had to step back in respect and listen to John Lewis. And he had many friends across the aisle, many Republicans, including some of the most conservative in Congress, who looked up to him and respected him. I had Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton on the program back in July to talk about John Lewis. Here's an excerpt of that interview. John uh, was a pioneer for nonviolent tactics at great risk to your, yourself. The SNCC at the time w- w- was essentially the shock troops of the civil rights movement. That is to say, before Martin Luther King and the church people got there with their marches, a SNCC had been on the ground and at great risk. So when we see John uh, in a movement, it is important to recognize that with his eye, with his eyes wide open, uh, he was leading SNCC into parts of the South that could not have been more closed. And by by that, I mean uh, you had arrayed against you local police, state police, uh, those who lived in the area, all apparently willing to bring violence with them and never knowing how much violence would come and whether your life was in jeopardy. Now, how do you encourage students uh, to take those risks? Well, first and foremost, it needs a fearless leader. And that's what John Lewis was. Because he was so fearless, because we saw him take those blows and survive, that encouraged other young people like me to believe you could live through it. (laughs) John Lewis died on July 17th. As long as we're talking about the fight for equality, I want to talk a little bit about Charles Evers. Charles Evers, he was the brother, the brother of the slain civil rights leader, Medgar Evers. And while Charles Evers started out as a, as a progressive, he worked for Bobby Kennedy, he, cared, he talked about civil rights, he became a right-wing Republican, which is pretty astonishing. Uh, Charles Evers and a number of other people from the civil rights movement uh, became somewhat disillusioned with the Democratic Party, became disillusioned with the civil rights movement, and and felt that somewhere they had gone astray and made this less about what they were trying to get and more about helping the Democratic Party win elections. So that was a group that Donald Trump could have appealed to, and certainly Charles Evers was not unique, but he was obviously, being as how he was so closely related to one of the movement's icons, uh, he was a person whose name always attracted attention. Yeah, I agree. I mean, going from Bobby Kennedy to Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump is fascinating. Speaking of Bobby Kennedy, though, Rayford Johnson died this year. He was the that Olympic champion who was with Bobby in Los Angeles 
on that day, and he helped wrestle the gun from the hands of Sirhan Sirhan. In our boyhood, Ken, there were few people we were looking up to more as athletes than Rafer Johnson. He was the decathlon champion in the in the Olympics, and that bestowed on him, if you will, the title of best athlete or greatest athlete or certainly most versatile athlete in a track and field sense in the world. And he was every bit of the human being that that would suggest as well. Well, speaking of all this, Boris Yarrow died. Does that name sound familiar to you? Boris Yarrow. Well, I don't think, I mean, it wasn't to me either until I read his obituary. He was that L.A. Times photographer photographer who took that iconic picture of that busboy, the distraught busboy in the Ambassador Hotel pantry kneeling over uh, Robert Kennedy's body. Uh, And he took that picture. He died this year as well. More than a half century later, that picture is still very vivid in my mind. Someday soon is gonna be one day Another person who died this year, um, he's somebody who you didn't expect to find on this list. He was the moderator of a gubernatorial debate in Pennsylvania in 2018. Tell me the name of the starting defensive lineman for the Eagles, who has won two consecutive Super Bowls, each one with a different team. Alex Trebek, there are few people who are more representative of what television could be, even a game show, could be edifying, could be educational, and could be something that you could be proud that you'd spent half an hour watching uh, when Alex Trebek was hosting. And you got to remember to ask this in a question, uh, who was Ron Elving? Okay, well, that's, that's <laughs> The okay. problem is that nobody is ever able to answer that question. <laughs> The Senate lost several of its former members. Uh, Let me just give you a list here. Uh, Five Republicans, Tom Coburn of Oklahoma, Slade Gorton of Washington, David Carnes of Nebraska, uh, Mark Andrews of North Dakota, Roger Jepson of Iowa. And then another longtime Democratic senator was Paul Sarbanes. He, He was not the most charismatic guy in the world, but he was elected five times and he passed that Sarbanes Oxley Act. He was also on the House Judiciary Committee during Watergate, and so was a Republican who died this year, Tom Railsback of Illinois. The thing with Railsback that fascinated me is he was elected with Richard Nixon's campaign help in Illinois when he beat a Democratic incumbent in 66. Uh, he was generally pro-Nixon, but but he was torn, I mean, literally torn during Watergate. That's right. There were a number of Republicans who suffered because they genuinely felt that what Richard Nixon had done was deserving of impeachment. But then, as perhaps now, uh, the process of impeachment became so thoroughly partisan and became seen as a litmus test uh, between the two parties. So you just simply couldn't ask good questions without being pilloried for it. And over on the Senate side, you saw Howard Baker, for example, who was uh, vice chair, almost co-chair, really, of the Watergate Investigation Committee in the Senate. Uh, He was a Republican, and he had ambitions on the national stage. 
And uh, really, he never had much of a chance uh, thereafter. He obviously didn't benefit from the Panama Canal Treaty that he helped Carter pass. But uh, he really hurt himself in the Republican Party, just as Railsback did, and some others, by saying, we've got to impeach this guy if he's guilty. Well, speaking of impeachment, if there was no Linda Tripp, there, there may have never been a Bill Clinton impeachment. Uh, well, that's possibly the case. Uh, we don't know what other devices uh, Ken Starr and his his uh, investigative crew, when Ken Starr was the prosecutor who was looking into various allegations against Bill Clinton, starting with a real estate deal back in Arkansas. And when those things didn't pan out, they eventually heard a story, uh, and they were pursuing a couple of other cases of sexual assault or sexual harassment that were allegations against Bill Clinton. They heard a story about a young woman who had been an intern in the White House, and they heard it basically from Linda Tripp. So she became, if you will, in, in a sense, the deep throat of the Clinton impeachment, uh, referring there to the FBI figure who provided a great deal of information that led to the impeachment of Richard Nixon back in 1974. I shouldn't say the impeachment, but the proceedings that led him to resign. Uh, So Linda Tripp played a similarly critical role in providing information without which it's hard to know whether or not that impeachment ever would have actually happened. Was she was she a Judas? Was she a betrayal? Was she a a, a conscience? Um, I don't know. I don't know if you could answer what motivated her, but how do you see her in history? Monica Lewinsky at the time, I think, was quite shocked that this person she had confided in, someone she had seen as a kind of mentor, uh, a big sister, if you will, uh, had recorded her telephone conversations and then had uh, essentially ratted her out to these federal investigators. Uh, Perhaps on some level, she was trying to help Monica Lewinsky. If you look at it a certain way, Monica Lewinsky probably should have been separated from Bill Clinton and whatever relationship they had by someone at some point or another. It would have done everyone a lot of good. New York, as you know, is my hometown. Um, New York lost some... I, I don't think you'd ever mention that. You no, know, I, I did. I did. Small, small town called the Bronx. But New York lost some giants. Uh, I was thinking of Pete Hamill, who was the quintessential New Yorker, a great a columnist and reporter. And David Dinkins, he was the first black mayor of New York. You know, he came into office in 1989 beating Ed Koch in the primary, and there were 12 years of Koch with nastiness and, and racial antagonism, and somehow David Dinkins was going to save the city. But I think even the, the job of, of saving New York was too difficult in the late 80s, early 90s. I've heard him described as, as a, a good man at the wrong time or in the wrong job at the wrong time, or perhaps uh, he could have had uh, a moment that would have been more propitious for him to be the first African-American mayor of New York. And I believe still the only African-American mayor of New York. And that is, uh, that is a distinction that uh, while when it happens is all positive, when you look back on it now, um, perhaps it just wasn't the best time for that to happen. And he might not have been the ideal person to have it happen, but he fought a years long running political battle uh, with his nemesis, who was Rudy Giuliani. Uh, at one time, Rudy Giuliani, on the basis of what happened on 9-11, became America's mayor, man of the year in some people's minds for what he did in the wake of 9-11. But over the years since, uh, as Giuliani's reputation has slid and in most recent weeks and months really kind of hit bottom, 
Uh, I think probably as people look back on his wars with David Dinkins, that will make Dinkins look better and better. Yeah, David Dinkins died in November. You know, he was the, I said he was the first black mayor of New York. For a while, people were saying that Herman Cain was going to be the second black president who was going to defeat the first black president. Today, I am announcing that I am running for president of the United States of America. If we believe in God, if we believe in ourselves, and we believe in the United States of America, then we can do great things. We will make America great again, but I need your help. This is our campaign of the people, by the people, and for the people. You know, Ron, it, it's hard to imagine, but there was a time when Herman Cain was the frontrunner, the Republican frontrunner. Uh, back in 2012, uh, Herman Cain did not factor in much because, well, he had had his moment and sort of peaked uh, in the fall of 2011. And they had a number of debates during that preliminary year, the odd-numbered year. And in those debates, he was at times quite impressive. And he rose in the polls. And at one point or another, half a dozen different candidates passed around the lead among Republicans, talking about who they would most like to nominate in 2012. Mitt Romney would be there, and then it would be somebody else. Rick Perry was on that list. Rick Santorum was running. And there were a lot of other people, and Herman Cain had his week or two at the top of that list, uh, partly because he was very forceful. He was a great world-class salesman. And uh, people looked at him and said, well, now there's a guy on our team, on the Republican team, that has some of the forcefulness of Barack Obama. And who knows, maybe he could bring back some of the voters who went to Obama in 2008. Yeah, but he, but he also had a bunch of affairs and, and, and charges of sexual harassment. Could you imagine? I mean, back that was back in a day when it was not a plus to be a Republican with sexual harassment charges leveled against you. In those days, and particularly because there was not a backstory, if you had known all about Herman Cain for many years and more or less come to accept him for all he was and all of his many parts, you might not have been bothered by that. But if you were just learning the man's name and hearing him say 999, you know, we can tax all these different things at a 9%. You know, he had this elaborate plan that Number sounded nine? like a pizza pricing plan Number and uh, did nine? seem to have borrowed from Number the 999 nine? idea. Number if that was the first you'd ever Number heard of Herman Cain and then the next Number thing you heard was sexual harassment, Number you thought nine? to yourself, we've been Number down that road nine? before. We don't need any more of those. I think the way he died, and I'm, I'm hoping not to sound insensitive here, but the way he died, I think, was emblematic of what was wrong uh, with 2020. He was at this Trump rally in Tulsa. No one sitting with him, including Kane, wore a mask. Uh, then he went on Twitter dismissing those who criticized him for not wearing a mask. And then two weeks later, he tested positive for COVID, and then less than a month, less than a month later, he was dead. It, it just seemed... The death, his death seemed unnecessary and infuriating. And it seemed symbolic of much of the way that the pandemic was unfolding. Unnecessary. And, and in a sense, the people who were denying it were, uh, in some cases, paying the ultimate price for that. And so, in a sense, in this final way, he was emblematic of what was happening on a larger stage. You know, I, I said that Herman Cain was briefly the frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. Clayton Williams was considered a certain winner in 1990 when he ran for governor of Texas against Ann Richards. Um, he didn't, it didn't turn out that way. 
It didn't, and part of the reason may have been Clady's own personality. I, I do remember talking to a group of Republican senators just before that election and people all laughing about the degree to which this fellow who had come out of nowhere with a lot of billboards and so on and kind of a populist hero in, folksy, in Texas. Right? In, oh, extraordinarily folksy. I mean, Clayton Williams going by Clady and having a lot of that sort of, uh, you know, crackling humor. And he was a bit of a precursor of Ross Perot, if you will, who ran for president in 92 and again in 96. It's very hard to compare them to Donald Trump, but there was certainly a, a, a sense about these fellows that they were personable and populist and easy to approach and accessible and anything but a politician. And I'm a million miles away from a politician. And he seemed to be riding that all the way to the governorship. But then there was a debate between Williams and uh, Ann Richards. And after that debate, in which Ann Richards had kind of, uh, you know, stood her ground as she always did, went toe to toe with Clady, uh, he, he walked over to shake his hand in a very cordial Texas kind of style. And he refused to shake her hand. And, you know, those kinds of things might not always matter a lot. But in Texas, where he was still kind of introducing himself to an awful lot of voters who had just seen him on billboards, that was a crippling blow. It really seemed to matter a great deal to a great many Texans who might otherwise have voted for him. And Ann Richards won. In addition to that, he had he was asked about his views on rape. And his words were, if it's inevitable, just relax and enjoy it. I mean, that's an astonishing thing to say. Uh, let me play a little bit of Ann Richards' reaction to that back then. When I hear remarks like Clayton Williams made, uh, I don't care whether it's made around a campfire or in a living room or uh, in a formal speech. It indicates a level of thinking that is an embarrassment in the community. There is a, there is a point where folksy, uh, ceases to be charming. Yeah, and well, that was the end of Governor Clayton Williams. You know, stupid comments, rude comments. We know that they could sometimes derail a, ca a career or a campaign. Pete Stark, for example, a liberal California congressman, very significant in healthcare debate. I, he he wrote parts of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, but he was so personally obnoxious that a, so many of his colleagues couldn't stand him, and that's probably the reason why he never became chairman of Ways and Means. They just they just didn't like him. He was an interesting guy. He was cantankerous all the way back to his days as a banker in the East Bay of the Bay Area of California. Another California politician always looking for a fight was Terrence Hallinan. Uh, he was a, a, a Cervic district attorney in San Francisco, and then but he lost uh, to someone by the name of uh, Kamala Harris. Yeah, yeah, and Cam Cam they're still trying to figure out how to pronounce that in the David Perdue's campaign down in Georgia. But uh, uh, that was a, that was a significant breakthrough for Kamala Harris because Terrence Hallinan was a household name, not only in San Francisco, but uh, throughout that part of California and California politics. So for her to win uh, said that she was someone to watch. And maybe at that particular moment, you started hearing people say, you know, this is a statewide candidate who could be on the national stage before we know it. Who knows how far she could go? Well, you know, there's so many people on the list that, I, you know, first of all, we have a lot of journalists uh, who we lost, whom we lost. Um, uh, I mentioned Pete Hamill earlier, but Gail Sheehy was a great writer for Vanity Fair. Uh, Richard Reeves was a great writer. Uh, Jim Lehrer was a, the quintessential presidential debate moderator. We also had a lot of, uh, we lost some 
we had some family connections who left us this year. Robert Trump, Gene Kennedy Smith, and Roberta McCain. Roberta McCain lived to be 108. You know something? Uh, as I was going through my list, there was a name I wasn't even thinking about, but we have to talk about, and that's George Floyd. A remarkable thought that a person none of us had ever heard of before the year began, and in a forest of extraordinarily tall trees, his name is going to be synonymous with 2020 as much as anyone else's. No, I agree. I mean, he, look, he wasn't the first person of color killed by white cops, but there's something about his death that touched the nerve, especially with white America. I mean, bl- maybe black America said, here's another one. Once again, it's another person of color being killed by the police. But somehow it seemed like white America suddenly woke up when George Floyd, when that cop's knee was on his neck and said, there's something wrong here. Yes. And of course, the, the videotape was an enormous factor here. It was not just one piece of videotape, but multiple angles, and people could see what the police were doing uh, at the time that he was uh, essentially killed by the nature and the way they were putting the knee on his neck and and, uh, holding him down in the sense that one got that they really did not need to continue subduing him, that he wasn't still struggling, and that there were multiple police officers, and he was not armed, and here he was down, and and just being assaulted, and, and then to 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 the to a mortal degree, uh, that was essentially shoved in the face of America night after night after night, and then of course he became the catalyst for one of the strongest moments in not just the civil rights movement, but the the human rights movement in this country. And he became a worldwide figure. He became a worldwide symbolic figure, not so much for the life he led, but for the death that was visited on him by injustice. Every time I think we've learned something from a tragedy like this, another senseless death happens, and I know it's not going to stop, but but I think George Floyd's death at least made a lot of people sit up and and take notice. Ron, I want to end this end this program with a with a personal note. Larry Rasky was a Democratic consultant uh, based out of Boston. Uh, he was Joe Biden's friend and loyalist and advisor for decades. He was his press secretary during his during Biden's presidential run in 1987. He was with Biden in 2008 and again in 2020, and until he died suddenly. And it breaks my heart that Larry never lived to see his friend Joe Biden win the presidency. And I should say that Larry was my friend too. And he was on this program a few years ago when Bo Biden died. I had him on the program to talk about Bo Biden and what Bo Biden's death meant to both Larry and, of course, the Biden family. I want to play some of that interview with my friend Larry Rasky. It's chilling, uh, Ken, to think about the vice president's grief. But, I mean, he and his son were one person in a way and you know and both his sons really it's uh 
Uh, so, uh, you know, grief was never far from any of them. Um, and uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, something we're all trying to process this week. I think that the one thing that I really hope people recognize about Joe Biden is um, the how close those feelings are to the bone uh, in everything he does and every decision he makes. Uh, frankly, it's why um, I've you know, always thought um, that Joe Biden would be a great president and why he's been such a wonderful public servant, because he understands what it means for a parent to lose a child and the responsibility that elected officials, and particularly the president, have um, you know, for the families and of the children they send into battle. And uh, it's not a casual uh, exercise for him. Uh, he feels it all uh, very deeply and processes it on a public life, on a personal basis. I saw this photograph on Bo's Twitter page from last November. It's a picture of a very young, very blonde Bo Biden sitting next to his dad. Uh, both father and son are wearing baseball caps, and they're sitting in what looks like to be a, a, a dugout. But, but this is what Bo wrote on his page. It says, Happy birthday to the best coach I could have asked for. I love you, Pop. I saw that, and, and the tears just didn't stop flowing. Well, uh, Ken, I don't think the tears have stopped flowing for any of us uh, this week. The bond um, between uh, these two men, uh, this father and son, uh, was unbreakable in life, um, and it will be unbreakable through eternity. Uh, I don't know, honestly, how the vice president's going to get through the days other than that I know he's going to focus on his grandchildren and on Bo's children. Um, and, uh, you know, making sure that, you know, they have everything, that the family has everything it needs to, uh, you know, cope with this loss. Ron Elving, my friend, it means a lot to me that you're available to go through this farewell episode with me. I know we both love politics. We love the political giants who made a difference, people we will miss, and it was. I, I'm glad I, ha I shared this with you. Indeed, it has been a great honor to share it with you, Ken. You are the person who lives politics more than perhaps anybody else that I know. And so when you relive these political events, uh, they seem quite, well, powerful, even chilling and real. Ron Elving is a senior editor and special correspondent and analyst for NPR. From 2006 to 2013, he and I hosted NPR's It's All Politics podcast, and The Political Junkie followed immediately afterwards. Ron, I wish you and your family a very happy new year, and I look forward to speaking to you in 2021. And the same to you and yours, Ken. I look forward to it as well. Thank you, Ron. Now it's time to 
Thanks for listening to the Political Junkie 2020 Remembrances Special. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. And coming up this week, my annual column with a more thorough list of political figures who passed away this year. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, or if you want to share any of your own special remembrances of the past year, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or follow the show on Facebook. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin, wishing you a very, very happy new year. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you in 2021, and please be safe. Sweet.